You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Sarah Paretsky. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. What way is that? The girl who'd issued the insult turned her head away, but the other seven chanted in unison, Dishonesty! Right, Bernice said. If you do not do your best, you are dishonest to yourself and to your team. If you do your best, you've won even if the other team outscores you. You learn from mistakes, n'est-ce pas? Losing a match is only a loss if you do not learn and grow from it. Yes, coach. Louder, you believe this! Thank you. I want to say you're such a good reader because not all writers are good readers of the, and, and singer of your work, actually. And it sets up the whole story with the sense of, from all your novels and your short stories, also your memoir, but this sense of compassion for people from all sectors of society. first book, she was much more just a sketch, not really a fully realized person, because I started writing out of a desire to counter stereotypes of the roles that women traditionally played in crime fiction in particular, although really in a lot of ways in all fiction. But in crime fiction, women could be vamps, in which case they were wicked. They used their bodies to get good boys to do bad things, or they were virgins who couldn't tie their shoes without adult supervision, or they were victims, most often just victims. And so I wanted a detective who was like the women that I knew who could had to solve her own problems, who didn't need to be rescued, who could have a sex life and didn't make her a bad person. But I wasn't thinking of her as a fully developed three-dimensional person, and that happened slowly with her over a number of years as I began writing more books. I hadn't thought of writing a series when I started. I was nervous whether I could even write a novel. and It was just to show, A, I could write a novel, and B, I could create a woman who could solve her own problems. It made me start thinking about Kansas because it was the kind of place that was very much gung-ho for war, invasion, anti-Muslim. And it, it made me start really digging into and exploring the world that I'd grown up in and that I was pretty ignorant about. And so I started wanting to go back there and tell stories that were set there. I wrote a standalone novel that was not wholly successful but called Bleeding Kansas that was trying to deal with how farm families were responding to the crisis of the time. Then a couple of my novels have sent VI to Kansas, and I've even, in a short story that's going to be published in an anthology next month in February, created a young woman who's a sheriff's deputy in the Lawrence area. I think it's particularly both places, Chicago and Lawrence, have forced you to think in particular ways about America, race, and American history and the way it's race and racism are embedded in the history. I'm Jewish, which is relevant to when we moved to Kansas, I was four, and at that time the town had restrictive covenants on where Jews and people of color could live, and they were in the 
mudflats along the Kansas River, which often flooded. Those houses often didn't even have indoor plumbing in the 1950s in the USA. So my parents opted to buy a house in the country, an old farmhouse. And so I grew up in farm country. They didn't farm, but that was the world that I lived in. So these racial issues were just very much there and and determined housing and a lot of things like that, that is also true in Chicago, but not so clearly seen as an outsider coming in. As you're navigating so many layers, I imagine, in Chicago, you're talking about your childhood and what I appreciated in writing in an age of silence. As I was trying to imagine, because you're so articulate and hearing you reading and putting, uh, inhabiting all these voices and even singing, then as you recount in your memoir, you, you had to take time to find your voice. Yes, that's very true. I had a friend, I did a graduate degree in history, and I had a friend in the graduate program who said when she first met me, she thought she was going deaf because I spoke so softly, she never could understand what I was saying. I think it's my brothers and I were so scared of being criticized that we all developed this kind of prison yard voice. We could mumble to each other and understand each other, but we never spoke up loudly in public. I think second wave feminism was a big help in my life. And I was very fortunate to fall in love with and marry a man who was enormously supportive of women in general and me in in particular. But I will say that I've tended to use VI as my default spokesperson. If you think that your ability to express yourself through VI ended up helping you express those views on your own too, it's like VI was kind of like the vessel that allowed you to feel more comfortable expressing what you were thinking at the time? That's a very shrewd guess or suggestion because I I think it's absolutely on target. Yeah, I I express myself pretty strongly and then I'm taken aback when I read in print what I've said and whereas VI can say it and it's just out there for for people to deal with. Also, she's tough enough to, to deal with any backlash about it. What, what I love about her, I think that we, people have called her a role model. You know, she's at once a detective, but of course she has this experience of the law. She's like the woman we'd like to be and also is feminine and not afraid of her sexuality. So I can imagine it would be wonderful to be that way. I cannot always be so spontaneous and to the point as that. I know she says things that take the rest of us five days to think, oh, if only I'd said that. Of course, sometimes it takes me five days to have her response coming to me, but it sounds very spontaneous in the book. That's where a lot of it is my imagination, what I imagine is happening, but a lot of the ideas are actually sparked by what's on, not necessarily the front page, but oftentimes in the business pages. When I wrote my first book, Stuart Kaminsky, who sadly died about a decade ago now, but He taught at Northwestern University in Chicago then, and I took a class in Northwestern's night school that he taught, and he was enormously helpful in helping me shape the first novel. But he suggested that she specialize in white-collar crime because at that time I worked in the financial service industry. (music) 
I started with insurance fraud because I was working in insurance and I wasn't an investigator, but I did a lot of support work for people in the claims department and they talked through a lot of the cases of how they had discovered and unraveled fraud and arson and things like that. So my earliest books took advantage of what I was hearing about on the job, but also just Deadland itself is set in ongoing fights in Chicago over the use of the lakefront and the Chicago Park District, which is trying to monetize the lakefront and convert part of the park in my neighborhood, Jackson Park, into a PGA golf course. Part of the Montrose Harbor Park, they would like to put up an amusement park there. So it's an ongoing fight over open parkland versus privately owned facilities that you would have to pay to get access to. So that's one of the strands that goes into this story. Mass murders in the United States, of course, it's ongoing and appalling. I don't think my life has been spared, having been part either as a victim or a friend of a victim. But I just cannot imagine what it would take to move on in your life from that experience. We're so prone as a society to say, oh, well, you know, they should just move on. We should just move on. I don't think people take into account the kind of shock and devastating, not just for that person, but generational kind of damage that's done to to having been part of that kind of horror story. I think we keep paying lip service to the idea that resilience is this great quality, and of course it is in a way, but it's as if we expect people to be resilient without changing the social norms that are doing damage, whether that is mass murder, letting people wander around with assault weapons in shops and malls and the Michigan State House, or whether it's systemic racism, both the big insults and the microaggressions. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.